Thanks, Ronnie. And thanks to the worship team, as always. Wonderful, wonderful. And thank you, Janet. Uh, Hebrews, we'll be getting to that, Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12 uh, directly uh, in a couple of weeks. But um, it talks about being surrounded by a, a, a cloud of witnesses who testify to us to the truth of the gospel. And uh, I think I can speak for a lot of people in this congregation that John and Janet have been part of that cloud of witnesses to us. And, um, and thank you, Janet, for sharing that, uh, those words. And um, it's uh, the word of God that, 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 uh, that you speak and that you sing. Let's pray together. Father, we do trust you to be who you say you are and all good and all loving. We know that you rule this universe and you rule it with wisdom and justice and righteousness. And uh, we do stay uh, confused sometimes and, um, and doubtful. But, um, but we do come on Sunday mornings in our homes and here in this place to declare that, um, that our loyalty and our allegiance to you, that uh, we do want to obey what you have commanded because your commands are bathed in love. And uh, your, your commands are, are for our deliverance, and your commands are to further your kingdom. And so, Father, that is our hope. Our hope is in you because you continue to minister, you continue to pray, and you continue to intercede for us. And we ask that you help us to copy that. We thank you for releasing us from shame and guilt. We thank you that you are making us whole and uh, complete. And we thank you that you know us, and we look forward to the day when we will fully know you and be fully known. Father, we declare our love for you this morning, and we declare our love because we have seen your face. We have seen your face on the cross, and we ponder that, and we contemplate on that, and know that um, because of experience with you, we trust you, and we know your suffering has been on our behalf. So, Father, we uh, declare our, our love for you, our desire to be a branch that continues to abide in your presence uh, so that we can be empowered by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Before we get started, I want to mention we've got some uh, devotional books uh, that uh, they're not Lent, they, but they begin in Holy Week and are, are calendared through all the way up to the day of Pentecost. And if you would like one of these uh, devotional books, they're outside on the table, and uh, feel free to pick one up. If you're at home and listening and you also would like one, you're free to come by the church and pick it up, or just let us know and we will deliver it to your house. Uh, Jerry said she will deliver it to your house. I'm not going to speak for myself, but I'll be glad to help if she wants me to. Uh, but uh, she said she will be glad to, to take it to your home if you would like to have one and uh, would like to just let us know at the office send me a phone call or text message or send Amber an email through, um, through, through info at svbchr.org. So, okay, uh, let's, we're looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 7 uh, this morning, continuing on in our series uh, with the book of Hebrews and the supremacy of Christ. And uh, we are looking at uh, chapter 7 that gives us a better hope. Uh, we looked at chapter 6 last week, and it was kind of a, it's a sticky chapter uh, about the assurance of, our salvation, even though it sounds like that 
that God wants to deal with us in a different way, but it is sure, but he will make sure that it is sure. Uh, you will hear every now and then of people saying that, um, that we won't know whether you're a true Christian until you persevere. And after you persevere, then you have the assurance that you're a believer. Well, Hebrews 7 tells, says just the opposite of that, that our assurance doesn't come from our perseverance, that the, uh, the source of our perseverance is not our assurance. The, the assurance is the source of our perseverance, not the other way around. In other words, we don't persevere to make sure we're saved or with Christ. We are assured, and therefore we persevere. Therefore we go on. So that's kind of what we're looking at in, in Hebrews chapter, 11, uh, chapter 7 and uh, of what he's dealing with as he picks up his theme from chapter 6. Now, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a footnote chaser uh, when I do research. Uh, I look at a footnote or a, or a reference, and I want to go, and, it, and, it, and I spend a lot of time looking at that, and it opens up new insights and new, new ideas, and I get immersed in that, and then they'll refer to something else, and so I'll go to that, and I'll start investigating that and just enjoy that. And uh, if those of you who took the Enneagram class, I'm a nine, so that means that it's one of my downfalls is that I will look for anything to do other than what's at the hand, what's at the task at hand. So if I can avoid writing, I will look and chase down footnotes and look at these other ideas. And I did that with my dissertation, and um, finally, uh, Sue said, uh, you will finish it this year. You will finish writing it this year, or you will not continue on the program, you know. And so that kind of that push said, okay, that's what I'll do. And so I spent almost every weekend for a year at Panera Bread in Sioux City, Iowa, uh, which is, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a deli bakery, you know, kind of chain here, trying to do that and trying to keep myself from being the footnote chaser. When I read Hebrews chapter 7, I almost feel like that's what the writer is doing here. He kind of came across something, this guy named Melchizedek, and, uh, and I almost feel like you're reading chapter 7, you're just reading the notes that he's jotting down. And he's pondering this idea, and, he, and this gives him this idea, and that gives him that idea, and that idea. And he's just kind of writing down these notes like he's, he's, we're reading his musings, you know, his ponderings, his, his thinking about this guy Melchizedek. He's mentioned him several times others in the book before chapter 7, but now he's come to the point in the book, in, the, in his argument, that this is the time to explain why he is important and who this guy is. And so he, he, we're not going to read the whole chapter 7. It's quite long, and like I said, it's quite a, a, a kind of a, a conglomerate of ideas and kind of a nest, but we will going to read the last chapter because the first two sections of chapter 7 sort of set us up for the punchline in verses 20 through 28. And so he kind of tells us a, a little bit about this and who this is and why this is important. And he says, Melchizedek is a, um, is a better priest than the Levites. Now, if we're right, and he is writing this book to a group of like the Essenes where we find the community of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that remember we talked about this before, they're a community that sort of withdrew from the rest of the world and kind of ripped, tried to duplicate their experience in the desert with the tabernacle and the rites and the rituals and that kind of thing. And so they kind of withdrawn, and, he, and evidently there's a, a, a group of them that are tempted to go back to that system, go back to the system of the tabernacles and the rites and the sacrifices and find their peace with God. And he's saying, if you want to find peace with God, don't go back. And so he's got to do a couple of things here. He's got to show that the Old Testament is saying that that system was never there to bring you peace with God. And he's going, then he has to go on to say that, what Jesus does 
is consistent with the Old Testament. And so if the Old Testament says this, Jesus is doing this and has done this. And so he's got to tell them that this is, the system was inadequate, but the better system, the Christ system, the priestly system of Jesus Christ is so much better. And so he begins by this starting with this Melchizedek guy. And the, evidently the writer loves Psalm 110. He loves that passage, and it's a messianic psalm. David is writing this, this psalm promising this Messiah, this king that will come in the future. But he's not just a king, he was also a priest. And he says this priest, this Messiah, will be after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is this Melchizedek? Well, he appears in Genesis chapter 14. And bottom line, in this, just a real summary, synopsis of the story, Abraham goes to battle to rescue his nephew Lot. And when he comes out of battle, he comes out with a lot of spoil, with a lot of booty, okay? Uh, the old definition of booty, okay? Uh, not the new one. He comes out with a lot of stuff. And, he, and uh, he, he approaches Melchizedek, who is a priest of the Most High, and he gives him a tithe. And Melchizedek blesses him. So here's this, there's this priest, and we have the idea that God has revealed himself to only Abraham in Genesis, and that Abraham's the only Yahweh worshiper in the world. Well, we know that's not true, because he comes and he meets Melchizedek, who is a priest of the Most High, Yahweh, the one true God. And this Yahweh, this Yahweh worshiper, Melchizedek, blesses Abraham and receives on the behalf of, Yah of Yahweh, behalf of God, a tithe to further the ministry of Yahweh. And so that's kind of basically the story. And so the author of Hebrews draws some conclusions from this. He says this king, is, uh, he has the title, first of all, priest, which is unusual because like the early Christians, they believed that Jesus was a king, a different kind of king, but a king nonetheless. But they hardly ever referred to him as a priest. And that's true with us too, isn't it? I mean, I hear people talking about Jesus our Lord, our Lord and King, he is my King, he is my Lord. But hardly ever do I hear anybody, including myself, say, Jesus is my priest. Well, many of the Essenes believed that there would be two messiahs, one religious and one secular, one king and one priest. And the author of Hebrews is arguing, no, this is all in the same person. It's all in the same person, one person, one messiah who is both priest and king. So he is the high priest. He also says that, the, that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. That's what the name means. Mel is king, Sadiq, or, or how we say it, Melchizedek or Sadiq, is righteousness and justice. So he is the king of justice. And he's the king of Salem, Shalom, which means he's also the king of peace. And I think it's really interesting that Abraham is coming back from a war, from battle, and meets the king of peace and the king of justice. Both those two things together. So he's saying that this king, this, this Melchizedek, is a priest and he's a king. And then David picks up on that and says, this Messiah that's coming will be after a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he will be like him. He will be a better priest than, he will be a better priest than Levi, than the line of Aaron. So that's what we see in the, first, in the uh, first section here, that we have a greater priest. 
But then he goes on in verse 11, says it means it's a, it's a greater priesthood. That it's a greater priesthood. What did they need? What did the, the Jews expect from the priesthood, from the Levitical priesthood is what they call it in the technical world? And, and just to pause here for a minute. I know we're getting kind of technical here, okay? Uh, because the, the Bible is technical here, okay? But it's, it's a little bit chewy. But as any good mechanic will tell you, if you, uh, if you want to ride down the road, you need to pay attention to the technical things. And so we got to pay attention a little bit to the technical here before we get riding down the road. So it is a better, a greater priesthood. And what do they need? What do they use the priesthood for? They would go to the priesthood to, to hear the will of God, to worship Yahweh, and to have some sort of contact with God, some sort of interaction with God through the priest of forgiveness of sins, of maybe a prayer of petitions, of, of bringing... bringing uh, uh, our concerns to him. That's what the priesthood is. And I mentioned last week the, the basic definition of a priest is someone who connects the invisible heavenlies or the invisible spiritual world with the physical visible world. Whether it's a Buddha priest, a Hindu priest, or Catholic priest. That's kind of the definition of a priest. So that's what the Levites, that's what the descendants of Aaron were supposed to do. They were supposed to connect this, connect this with the physical world, connect God with the physical world. And that's how they did it. And that's what their expectations were. But the writer goes on in this section to say, yes, but the system was inadequate. We need a better system. We need a better hope. It failed or didn't do what you think it was supposed to do. And he says, we want something and we need something better. Better because it doesn't do, it's inadequate. Now, he's not saying that it's better. It's really interesting. The word better that's translated better in the New Testament here in Hebrews, it's used more in Hebrews than, than the whole New Testament combined. And so what the, Hebrews is, the book of Hebrews is all about is about change. That he's, this is something going on better. And it's not because God's plan failed or he made a mistake. It was never meant to succeed in the way that we needed it to. Never. It was meant to point to what was coming. He said it never brought about perfection. Now, perfection, we usually think of somebody that's morally perfect. And with a lot of work and a lot of effort, we can arrive at morally, moral perfection. Now, for most of us, that's a long way off. But that's not what he's getting at here. The word here can be translated complete or whole. It's like the end, like finishing a marathon. That's complete. And he's saying that the, the Levitical priesthood, this, this whole system of the Old Testament, was never meant to be complete. It was always meant to point to something better. It wasn't supposed to meet our expectations. The greater priesthood. A greater priest needs a greater priesthood. And then we get to... Well, let me read verse 11 here. I forgot about it. I put that up there. Now, we know, we, now if, we know if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under the priesthood, we would be there and be no need for another priest arising of the Melchizedek type rather than the Aaron type. And what he's saying there is that, that if we had known if this was perfect, if the Levitical priesthood was going to work, 
David never would have said anything about Melchizedek. He never would have promised another priesthood, but he did. And he's saying what the Old Testament says is what Jesus does. Then he goes on in verse 12, for when there is change in the priesthood, there's a, necessi there's a necessity, necessity, a change in the law as well, that we need a different system. And we find that different system in the better hope, verses 20 through 28. Now I'm going to go ahead and read that, chapter, that paragraph out of this chapter, verses 20 through 28. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with the oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant, which he will also talk about in chapter 8. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints a high priest men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. And we will look at that of how he was made perfect in a little bit. So he is saying that we needed a better priest, we needed a better system, we have a better hope. That's the whole point of chapter, chapter 7. It's a better hope because it's based on an oath, not a bloodline. It's based on a promise, a promise not just any oath, but an oath that God made. God promised Abraham this tremendous family, and in Christ, he has this tremendous family that encompasses the entire globe, that encompasses every generation, that it is based on an oath, not a bloodline. A bloodline makes it fallible. Uh, a few years, a couple of years ago, I watched this documentary on Tsar Nicholas II. He was the Tsar that got overthrown by the Bolsheviks in communist Russia. And uh, he was under great pressure to produce a male heir because the people had faith that this line was ordained by God. This was the God's given, given bloodline to rule Russia. And because of that, he had to produce a male heir to prove that they were in God's, they were in God's favor. But the son that was born was a hemophiliac. He had a blood disease. And they tried to keep that secret because if they knew that he had a weakened bloodline, it would weaken the monarchy. It would weaken his rule. And that's true in, in the priesthood too. If it's by a bloodline, it's weaker. It's not by an oath. It's not by a promise, promise made by God that cannot be revoked, that cannot be changed. It is not reversible. We know this from Eli's sons in 1 Samuel. They were in the bloodline of Aaron and utter failures. But this is a better hope because it's not based on the bloodline. It's based on a promise of God. It's a better hope because it is permanent. And it is permanent because the high priest has overcome death. 
It will always be because he has come through the other side. He has burst on the scene with new life. And that makes it a better system, a better covenant, a better hope. He has overcome death. He goes on to say, you know, the Levitical priests, we had a bunch of priests from the line of Aaron, and they, every generation we've got more and more and more priests. Why? Because they die. I mean, it's like, okay, that's pretty obvious. Duh, that's how the system works. Uh, Paul Simon has a line in the song, The Boxer. He says that, uh, he says, I am older than I once was, but younger than I will be. That's not unusual. You're right. That's not unusual. That's what happens to all of us. We're older than we were, but we're, not as, we're but still younger than we will be. And that happens to every priest. They die. But this one doesn't. This one has overcome death. And it is a better hope because he is uniquely qualified. The perfect has burst onto the scene. The complete, the whole, has burst onto the scene. He is completely qualified. No one else is completely qualified. Only the incarnation of the Word, the Word incarnate, was qualified to take all the power of evil on himself, all the sin in the world on himself, and then come out defeated, take it all on the cross, and respond in one way that only he could do, Father, forgive them. And then come out on the other side with new life. He has accomplished the perfection that the Hebrews talks about in him. And he has accomplished it for us. And not only that one time, but he continues to intercede for us. And I really believe that's the heart of this whole chapter, is that he is continually interceding for us. And that constitutes the better hope. So what's the good news of this passage? Whenever I preach a passage or look at a passage, that's the question I ask myself. What's the good news for this passage? Um, I have never, ever heard good news that said, here's the problem and here's what you need to do to fix it. The good news for me is, here's the problem, here's what God's done to fix it. That's the only thing that transforms me. Tell me what I have to do to fix it. That doesn't do it. That's not good news. What's the good news in this passage? First of all, our relationship with God is not static. It's a dynamic and vigorous relationship. It's not something that we nail down on, on um, you know, uh, August 2nd, 19, uh, 1968, when you accepted, I'm saying using that date because it's when I accepted Christ as my Savior, you know, and that's it, done, deal, it's all over. I know we can, we can point back to that. Many of us can point back to the exact moment, the exact date, the exact event of when we first trusted Christ. Others of us, it's more like uh, wading out in the ocean and suddenly you realize you're in the water. You can't really say when you left the beach and ended the water, you know. But regardless of what that is, it's not over then. You say, okay, I'm good to go, and now I just need to uh, follow the instruction book till I, leave, till I leave earth. That's not it at all. Our relationship with God is dynamic. It's always in movement. It's a vigorous relationship that he is interceding for us. It's ongoing. Jesus' concern is not for our own needs, but for ours. That's what intercessory prayer is. 
his interceding for us before the throne of God is because he has shifted the concerns for his own needs to your needs. He is concerned about our needs, not his own. Intercessory prayer is a priestly prayer. And this is something for us, that when we pray for other people, we are following the model of the high priest. Because that's what intercessory prayer is. Intercessory prayer is, is, is leaving our needs, our concerns behind, and taking on the concerns of someone else. And Jesus is our model for that. And so when we're praying for other people, we are taking on a priestly role. We are connecting the invisible spiritual world of the kingdom with the visible, spiritual, with the visible physical world of the earth. That's what intercessory prayer is, and Jesus is our model. And finally, our center of gravity shifts to Jesus. He is our gravitational pull. That is really the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Now, we can get into theology discussions. We can get into talking about these, these uh, details of the scriptures, and we can debate theology. We can debate assurance and perseverance and security and non-security. You can, you can debate all kinds of things, and we do do that. As religious people, I do that. As a Christian professional here, it's easy for me to do that. And Jesus kind of comes in as sort of an afterthought. Well, Hebrews has an antidote for that. The priority of Hebrews is Jesus. And he draws us back to that. He is our gravitational pull. All the stuff that's going on in our world, all the conflict, all the polarization, all the discussion, all the theology, everything, we come back to Jesus. Hebrews pulls us back. It is our gravitational pull. Martin Luther said that the Bible is the cradle that holds the Christ. It's not the Christ. It is the cradle that holds Christ. And I believe that. All the stuff that we talk about in the Bible and stuff, that's all great, but it's, a, it's just a cradle that holds Christ. I love the scriptures. I love the Bible. I love the challenges. I love the artistry. I love the ancient stories. I love the, the, the way it, it just describes the folly of human beings. It's like, you know, like we do one dumb thing after another. And, and I love that. I love that. But I love it because it cradles Christ. That's where we pull. That's our pull of gravity, pull of gravity is the person of Jesus Christ. I am convinced that the author of Hebrews would agree very much, would say amen to Martin Luther, that the scriptures are the cradle of Christ. That's where we are pulled, always, always, always. Some of you may have uh, seen this Norman Rockwell painting before. It's called, um, I uh, lift, up the, lift Up Thine Eyes and See, taken out of uh, Isaiah. And uh, the way he has painted this, and I learned these things from my wife. Don't think that I just came up with these things on my own. But, I, but the way he painted this in a vertical way, and the way the arches are going, and the way the, the, the ladders are going up, and the, the lines, it automatically draws your eye to the top. 
But then you look at the bottom and you see the people down below. And they're looking everywhere but there. there some of them look sad. Some of them look like they're carrying burdens. Some of them just look distracted. I am convinced that if Rockwell had painted this today, they would all be carrying cell phones. <laughs> walking up and down, not noticing anything. Not, even, not just not recognizing God. And I believe the movement of the Spirit, which is what I think the doves represent up there. But they're not seeing the beauty of the earth. They're not seeing each other's faces. They're not looking at anything except their own feet. I, I had a student back in, at Northwestern College who was an actuary major. And I was going, actuary, what is an actuary, you know? And he says, uh, well, Tom, you know the difference between an actuary and a, an accountant? And I go, no, what? He says, well, accountant will, will stare at your shoes while he's talking to you. An actuary stares at his own shoes. So, <laughs> so that's, what, that's kind of we're all actuaries here. We're all kind of just, just staring at our own shoes. Even us Christian folk. We end up staring at our, just staring at our own shoes. Again, Martin Luther says that we are curved inward. And he's right. We look around and we look inward. And, Jesus, and Hebrews is saying, lift up thine eyes and see. Look up beyond the crowd, behind your shoes, and see the faces of the people. It's not just the, it's not just the, the spirit things you're, you're missing. You're missing all of what God's doing in all of creation. And he's saying this is, this is what the Israelites looked like in Isaiah. And Hebrews is probably saying this is what you guys look like, the Essenes. And we can say today this is what we look like, walking around staring at our own shoes. And I think this is a universal problem. It's not unique to Israel. It's not unique to us. It's totally universal. But for some reason, we think... We do all kinds of things to, to avoid the grace of God. God's grace is right now, he is interceding for you every single day, every single moment. He is thinking about you and he is talking to God the Father about you. I don't know how all this works. I just know it's true. That he is talking to God about us. And yes, we do all kinds of things, religious things, secular things, all kinds of things, getting all kinds of systems. In the, in the Hebrews, their, the readers there, their system was to go back to the Levitical system, the tabernacle, the laws, the sacrifices. We have other systems that we, we rely on, whether it's an economic system or a government system or a religious system, and we keep going back, but we're still looking at our own shoes because it's too scary to confront the grace of God. When we know that Christ is interceding for us, Yes, it does uncover our, our hearts, and we open our hearts to that, and we think that's a scary thing, but it is not. It is a healing thing. It is a cons consolation of compassion. It's much easier for us to point out the faults of other people rather than to open our hearts to the intercession of Christ. His intercession is forever. Basically, Hebrews chapter 7 says this. When I come to God through Christ, he goes to God for me. 
Now, some people may be looking at that saying, oh, that's so, that's so exclusive. No, it is inclusive. It is totally inclusive. It's not limited to a sacrifice in a tabernacle. It's not limited to a Jewish race of people. It is open to anyone. When people are looking for peace with God, when people are looking for assurance, when people are looking for hope, we can say, Christ will show you the way. And he models the way. In fact, he is the way. We come to God through Christ. He goes to God for us. That's grace. That's where we put our trust. If you were to be asked, is there anything in this world that you can be certain about? We must answer the love of Christ. Nothing else, not my wife, not my family, not my job, not my friends, not my philosophy, not art, not science. Nothing is certain except the love of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that's certain. And when I come to God through him, he goes to God for me. Let's pray, and I'm going to ask you guys to come on back up.